Morning, Chapel Hill. Got a question for you to start this morning. How are your neighbors? They're out, aren't they? They've emerged from hibernation. And so I want to just remind us again this morning as we go back to the things that we looked at this winter. God has made us a light in our neighborhoods, hasn't he? And we're surrounded with opportunities to connect with people, to develop relationships, to develop community, to develop environments in which we can share his love and his light. And so this morning, just to to get your minds back into it and your hearts back into it, um, I've asked my beautiful wife if she will come and share a story with you of something that happened recently in our neighborhood. So Kim, why don't you come and... uh, let us know. <laughs> so we are, um, we have a wonderful neighbor that lived across the street from us named Kay. And uh, when we first moved in, Kay and her husband lived there and they had a granddaughter living with them who was about 11 years old. And Kay's, Kay and Jim would say hi to us on occasion, but we really didn't know them real well. Their granddaughter was at our house constantly and we loved having her around. Um, we knew that Kay's husband was sick. We didn't realize how sick. And uh, when I first moved in, we had two two-year-olds, and we we're in the process of wading through adoption paperwork, which can be quite extensive. Um, and I would ask the granddaughter, Tasia, how's your grandpa doing? And she'd always say, oh, he's, he's doing pretty good, or eh, he's not doing so great. But we really didn't know much beyond that. And we'd see Jim outside. And then one day, well, we, oh, so a year goes by, and we still don't know them real well. We're, we're trying to get our life together, and we just relocated from Africa and stuff. And Asher comes along, our last child, and so now I have a newborn and two three-year-olds. And um, one day I'm bringing the boys home from preschool, and I see cars all up and down my street, and I have no idea why. And I learned quickly that Jim, Jim had died, and we had no idea. We had no idea. And I felt absolutely horrible. And they were having a funeral luncheon at their house afterwards. And at that point, I was just, I thought, it doesn't matter how overwhelmed we are with these small little pack of boys. I need to be, I need to be helping my neighbors. I just felt horrible that we had not known he was that sick. And so I started to get to know Kay. So I went, the first thing I did was I got, um, I went over and I had apologized and talked to her and, and said we didn't realize he was that sick. And we started a friendship to go a little deeper then, I got her a Max Lucado book um, that dealt with kind of struggling through the storms of life, and it had chapters in there about someone who was recently widowed. And so um, she began reading it and really enjoyed it. And so through the years then, as different occasions would come up, Christmas or whatever, I would get her different books that I thought might be ones she would enjoy reading um, that were Christian. She did not attend church at the time. Um, so... Flash forward, we, we ended up becoming really, really good friends. She was a big blessing to our family. Uh, she told me, don't take the boys to the beach. Just bring them across the street, and they can swim at our house. And so our kids were over there constantly. She loved having them there. Um, she became kind of a grandma to us. And she was the one my boys would run over and put flowers on her door for May Day and run away and giggle. And she just a wonderful person. Um, so she... She told us three years ago she was going to move, and we were just so sad for so many reasons. And, um, and her house didn't sell, and secretly I was really glad. <laughs> a year later, she said, I'm going to put it on the market again. And I was like, oh. And it didn't sell, and I was like, yeah, 
third time, third year, she said, I'm going to put it on the market. I said, okay, I'm going to just, you know, I, I'm tempted to try to thwart your plans at this point because I really don't want you to move, you know. Maybe I'll send the boys over and they'll misbehave when you're having showings or something, you know. And 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 I, I didn't do that. I was convicted about that one. But I had some great plans, though, on how to thwart that. Um, so last year she told me when it didn't sell again, she said, that's it, Kim, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm done with this. In the meantime, she had started going to a church and really was enjoying it, and her spiritual life started to take off in, in exciting ways. And she told me, I'm at the point, if God wants me to sell, I told him, you bring somebody to my door. I'm not doing the showing thing again, I'm not doing the putting the sign out, it's a headache, I don't want to do it. If you want me to move, God, you're going to have to make it happen. So in January, somebody showed up at her door. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no. And, and sure enough, can we, we heard your house was previously on the market a few years ago. Can we check it out? And it was a couple from Florida that wanted a, a summer place up here to be near their grandkids. And so she let them check it out. And she said, Kim, it's, it's just like I prayed. And I said, I know. And I want to be happy for you, but I'm really not. <laughs> and she said, well, if it's God's will. And I went, yeah, if it's God's will. And so the night before they were to, to close, she prayed, and she prayed, God, if it's your will, I want them to pay in cash. I want them to meet my asking price, and I don't want inspection. And she told me that, and I thought, oh, good. Good call, Kate, because then you're not moving, and I was pretty happy about that. So I was like, that's all good, right? And so she told me, that's what I'm praying. If God wants me to move, he's going to make all that happen. And I was like, okay, good. And I went home thinking, Kate's going to be our neighbor for a long time, and that's good. And they went to the closing, and they offered her all that. And they said, it, it was January, they said, not only that, but we don't need to come right away, so you can live there for February, March, and April, and just pay us a dollar each month. And I was like, <sighs> so I was, I was kind of, you know, I was like, okay, God, I get it. It's your will. And, and I didn't have the greatest attitude about it, but I realized I saw a, a lightness in Kay and a freedom, and she, she felt burdened by her house, and she felt like she really needed to sell it to help some of the extended family members out with their, their living situations. And I went, okay, yeah, extended family, care for others, I get it. So it was all snowballing towards her moving. But she was widowed and, and no family in state except for one son who was disabled. And um, so we, we took on the task of selling her stuff for her on Facebook and on Craigslist. And I voluntold Paul to help load up the car when it was the day to move. <laughs> Thank you, Tim McWilliams, for that word, voluntold. Kay says I voluntold Paul for a lot of things over the years, and I probably did. Um, but she was processing the whole thing, and she said, you know, the one thing I don't know what to do with is I don't know what to do with, with Jim's ashes. She said, I, I, I want to leave him here. We lived here 29 years, and this is where he overcame his addictions, and this is our happy place. And there's nothing, there's nothing to remind us of our life together in Ohio. So she said, I, I talked to... Our, my stepchildren and my step-grandchildren, nobody cares. Nobody cares what I do with them, but I care, and I want to leave them here. And I said, okay, I'll go get a shovel. And she said, no, 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 the lake. I went, okay, that'll work. And, and so I said, let's, uh, you know, what do you need to do to do it then? She goes, well, it, it's, it's gross outside. It's cloudy. It's rainy. And I went, yeah. And it was that whole week of rain that we had about two weeks ago. And so she was scheduled to leave on Friday, and every single day was horrible weather, just dreary. And so Friday came. It was the day she was going to pack up and leave, and Paul came over to do the final pack on the car because he's good at that. And, um, and I was helping her do the last things, and it was sunny. So I came over. I said, Kay, another answered prayer. Look at that. And she goes, can't get the urn open. I tried last night. Can't open it. 
And I thought, well, that's weird. And I go, was it sealed? She goes, I don't know. I stopped by the funeral home. Nobody was there. Nobody died, apparently, so I'm out of luck. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's one way to look at it. So I started calling funeral homes. And then I started YouTube videos. And there's a frightening large amount of YouTube videos on how to open urns, if any of you care. I will tell you, you have to know the exact model before you look up the YouTube videos or it's useless. So Jim was apparently in a brass and enamel ginger jar urn. That's the model number. I know that, committed to memory now, because Facebook keeps advertising it on my Facebook feed (laughs) for two weeks straight. It's enough to make me quit Facebook, people. I'm just, I'm tired looking at Jim's urn on my Facebook feed. So... I finally thought, I wonder if there's something on there that identifies it. So I went and I looked on the bottom of the urn. I had to run back over to her house because she's doing the final sweep of the kitchen floor. And we're down to minutes before she wants to get on the road. And she is so sad about the urn. And, but she's happy about moving because it's God's will. And she's all happy. And I'm, try- I'm the one sobbing, telling her goodbye. And she's like, yeah, okay, see ya. And, but she's still sad about the urn. So I'm trying to get that opened. And I run over there. It's, it's strapped in on the passenger seat. So I unstrap it, flip it over carefully, because I thought it'd be my luck, the lid would flop open. And, and sure enough, on the bottom, there was a small identification tag that said where it was done, which crematorium. So I ran home and I called them, and they said, oh, that kind, a brass and enamel ginger jar? You just unscrew it. I said, well, I tried that. Is it epoxied? Is it vacuum sealed? No, you just unscrew it. Well, we tried that. Well, you need to try harder. Thank you. Have a good day. And... I hung up, and I was so disgusted with that. I was like, really? That's what you're going to give me? So I, I feel like it was only God that did this. I stood up, and I was frustrated, and I wanted to pace. And somehow I walked around the corner. I paced in the kitchen. And I, I walked into the kitchen, and, and on our oven door was the of glove. And I thought, oh, the of glove. And I ran across the street wearing the of glove, and it has these grippy tapes. And so I tried it, and it popped right open. And so I ran in the house, still carrying the urn, still wearing the of glove. And I said, Kay, it's open. And she said, that's fantastic. And she was putting, like, the, putting the dust in the, in the garbage. That was all she had left. And she goes, oh, I literally just finished praying that God would get it open somehow for us. I'm like, okay, another answer prayer, awesome. And she goes, this is just like our song. And I thought, I don't have a song with you, Kay. What are you <laughs> And she's giddy and gleeful, and she goes, they played it at our wedding. I'm like, oh, okay, yours and Jim's song. I'm back on track. I'm tired. I'm frustrated by the urn. And, and she goes, she suddenly burst out into song. I've known her for 10 years. She's never sung around me. And it was loud and proud and about 8 to 10 verses of Through the Years by Kenny Rogers. And she's elated, and she's exhausted, and she's emotional, and she's singing loudly in her kitchen. And I thought, okay. And she goes, I'm just going to go wash my hands, and I'm going to go out in the dock and take care of it. And I said, okay, great. So while she does that, I thought, hmm, I have limited techie skills, but I have some. So I popped on Amazon. I downloaded Through the Years by Kenny Rogers. When she walked out of the bathroom, I hit play. And she looked at me stunned, and she got all teary, and I thought, here comes the tears. Good, because I've been crying all morning. It's about time you cried. And she goes, oh. And I said, I don't know how to put it on your phone. I'm not that techie. But take my phone with you out on the dock, and then you can listen to it while you do your thing, and you pray, and you have a moment. She said, oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. So I said, just give me the phone back before you leave for Ohio. She said, I will. I will. I'm going to go do some yard work, drop it off before you leave. So she said, okay. So she goes out, and Paul's walking the dog at this time. And 
about 10 minutes later, I hear her calling Paul, and she sounds kind of excited. And I thought, oh, she's going to say nice things about his wife. You know, she was so thoughtful downloading Kenny Rogers. And, and so I, I, I'm listening from across the street. I think, no, she sounds really, really upset. And I go running across the street, and she's sobbing hysterically, and she's sopping wet. And I said, Kay, did you fall in? It's not warm at this time of the year in the lake. It's not. And, and she said, no, I jumped in. I said, why? After your phone. <laughs> I said, it's just a phone, Kay, and it's backed up to Google. Why would you do that? And it, it's up to like here at the end of her dock. And she said, I didn't want to wreck your phone. I'm so sorry about your phone. I'm like, I don't care about the phone. Let's get you in dry clothes. Well, she'd already locked her house with the keys inside for the realtor. So Paul helped unpack her car to get her clothes and towels and then while she was doing that, I got a lacrosse stick and a hockey stick and a robotic reachy arm thing of the kids. And I tried everything to reach the phone. I was like, this much too short. So I went, okay. I went back home, got my swimming suit on. The other neighbors showed up to put their dock in. Three big burly guys pulling on waders. And I'm like, wimps. So I, I walk out there. I'm like, what's up? Just walk in the lake. Get out to the, th- to the end, and it's up to here on me, and I thought I can either dive down and get the phone, but I'm supposed to be at the school in 20 minutes to teach a music class, so I'll do it with my feet. So I pick it up with my feet, and when it gets close enough, I grab it with my hand, and it's been face down this whole time, and now it's like 20 minutes, right? So I turn it over, and there's Kenny Rogers. <laughs> and I pull it out of the water, and he's still singing. <laughs> And I couldn't believe it. I was just stunned. So I walked back up to Kay, and I, I hold it up for her, and there it is, through the years. And she just looked shocked. And, and I had told her when it first happened, I said, someday you'll laugh about this. She's like, no, I won't, because I ruined your phone. And when I played it for her, she started laughing. And I said, Kay, think about it. The last thing you did before you left Minnesota, before you left Prior Lake, before you left Spring Lake, you went for one last swim with Jim and Kenny. And she said... It kind of was like a dream come true. Okay, so it all ended good. But, but the cool thing was she started to see God working in all these things. And for her to go from never talking about God to, I just got done praying that God would get the urn open and it's open. And suddenly bursting in the song is, is, it was a big switch. And I, I don't think it was just our prayers. I think a lot of people were praying for Kay. And she was seeking. But the cool thing is God is active and working and, and seeking her her. He wanted her back home, and she's, she's, she's responded to that. And she has a vibrant relationship with God now, and I'm thrilled about that. And another cool thing that happened is the new neighbors that moved in are already believers. So they're, they're fun, too, and that was all good. But it was cool to see how God answered a lot of prayers for Kay along the way. So thank you. And I highly recommend the Glove. Listen, Chapel Hill, uh, join God in what he's doing in your neighborhood. He's there. He's there, and he wants to use you and me to unlock their faith, to bring them closer to him, to, to raise some of the questions that they've been wondering about, that they haven't had anyone to talk with about. Connect. Connect with your neighbors, Chapel Hill connect with them. All right. If you do not have a Bible, you're going to need one to follow along in. So if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along in. And if you're receiving one of those Bibles and you currently do not have a Bible of your own, please keep that Bible, take it with you, dig into it and find God there. 
Um, just want to affirm what Ryan said about our faith pledges, about our, our missions, our outreach focus. And as we head into the new fiscal year starting in July, um, please get on board with that. Our, our missionaries would love to hear, yes, we can support you for another year at this level and then some. We would love to see that happen. Um, also, while well, Bibles are being handed out um, and you guys are turning to First Peter chapter 2, um, just want to say congratulations to the Campbell family. I see you guys are here on Taylor's wedding on Friday. Taylor and Josh were married and we're super excited for you guys. And it was a beautiful God-centered, God-honoring ceremony and I couldn't have been happier with the way things went there. So congratulations to you guys. It was a pleasure to be there and our, our prayers are with you. All right. Uh, we have been in First Peter chapter 2. Last week we looked at First Peter 2.17 and a specific phrase in there, love the brotherhood. We talked about the need for us to love each other and how God has called us and equipped us and, and just given us this, this real sense of importance from him that we're to love each other and we're to love each other genuinely. Genuinely, and there's so much good that can come out of that. And so we looked at Peter's words there, and they were affirmed by Paul's words, where Paul wrote, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. We talked about that. In Chapel Hill, I want to just continuously get better and better and better at this, at loving each other as God's family, as God's church. We're going to move forward now. Turn to First Peter chapter 2. And we're going to start pressing forward in chapter 2. We're going to read right now verses 18 through 25. 18 to 25 of 1 Peter chapter 2. And this all falls under the umbrella of Peter's one very clear, bold statement that's only two words. And the two words are honor everyone. Honor everyone. This continues along in that vein. Peter continues to unpack what it means to honor everyone. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 18 through 25. This is what Peter writes. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, commanded, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is an awful lot in this passage. There is no possible way we're going to cover it all today. He talks about submission to authority. He talks about suffering. He talks about persecution. He talks about justice. He talks about God's sovereignty, Christ's example. He talks about trust, righteousness, obedience. All of this is in there, but we have to start somewhere. And so we're going to start this morning just in the first half of verse 18. 
And this morning I want to cover real quickly four things. First of all, the cultural context in which this passage was written, because it's very important that we understand that. And I've learned an awful lot digging into this, and I'll share some of that with you. Secondly, we want to cover just briefly our perspective on work, because it affects the way that we view this passage and others that we'll look at in this study. Thirdly, we're going to look at God's perspective on work and his purpose for us in work and just introduce that because that's where we're going for the next few weeks. And then we're also going to talk about our bosses and where we start with this. And we're going to start at a very good place, I think. Peter writes this in chapter 2, verse 18. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect. And we've got to understand understand Peter's audience right now. Because Peter was writing to the scattered church. Remember, they were all over the place. And he wrote to all these churches. His letter was traveling and being spoken to, read to the churches. And these churches were made up of some people who came from those areas originally, but others who were scattered because of the persecution they faced for following Jesus Christ. They had to relocate. They had to move to other areas and settle in there. And you'll discover as I go here and and unpack this, that this will have applied to a lot of those people who relocated because they had to start again. They had to have something. They had to have some form of income. They had to have something to do for a living. And Peter's talking to them in here. He's talking to these people who have new jobs, new careers, And are starting out in those. And it's very different than what we might think. But here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to check out. Because when Peter says servants or he talks about slaves. And you go, okay, I'm not connected to that world at all. That's not what we want to happen here. You'll discover as we go that Peter has an awful lot to say to us. Not just to the first century church. We need to understand the context in which this was written. And so I want to spend a little while this morning just uh, helping you get a picture of what was going on at that time and what uh, context Peter was writing into. And so I want to go through some facts, and they come from several different sources, about the slave or servant environment in the first century. Because it's very important that we understand it. This is not the kind of slave or servant environment that comes to mind for us in this country, in our context, when we think of slavery. This is different. And you'll see that as we go. And it'll just help us to set our own, our own picture, our own reference point when it comes to slavery. It'll help us to kind of set that aside and go, okay, so maybe there is some relevance here to what Peter's writing to the church. So here we go. Uh, first of all, to become a slave meant that you became of the same household as the person who was your master. You came under the rule and, and, and law of that particular household. You became one of them and you lived by their standards, by their guidelines. You lived within their household. And there will be more on that um, as we go that you'll see. And so you had, as a slave, as a servant, you had a master. It was the head of that household. You belonged to the head of that household. And you had to act as as if you belonged to the head of that household. However, here's where our understanding of slavery in our country and this particular picture of slavery that was going on in the first century, this is where they go like this. 
where they become very different. Because at the time that this letter was written, slaves were considered a social class. It was a social class. It was an accepted part of their structure. It was part of their environment. It was part of their economy. It was part of their culture. Slaves were a social class. There was no ethnicity or race automatically tied to slavery. That's not how it worked. It was people coming from all different races, all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities. As a matter of fact, the slave class in that particular environment made up somewhere between 20 and 40% of the population. It was a lot of people. It represented a significant portion of the population. Some of those slaves were attained as spoils of war. When one country would defeat another or one kingdom would defeat another, they would take those they defeated as slaves. They would come into their own culture as that particular social class, as slaves and servants. But there were other ways to become a slave. That was not the only way. Children of existing slaves automatically were considered slaves back then. They were born into that. But people could also sell their children into slavery. And don't go too far with that in your mind. Again, this doesn't go with the culture that we're in right now. and What we're thinking of when that happens. But sometimes children were sold into that class. Also, people could sell themselves into slavery. If you owed somebody a sizable debt and you knew that you could not pay it off, you could sell yourself into slavery for that person to pay off that debt. Now listen, generally people were not stolen, ripped away from their families and forced into slavery. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a very different picture. This is not colonial America. This is not, not the sex trafficking industry that we see right here in our own city. That's not what this was. It didn't happen that way outside of the spoils of war. People weren't just automatically ripped out. There wasn't that, that sense to it. <clears throat> Understand this. Slaves or servants were not the lowest class in that society. They were not. The lowest class was made up of day laborers. It wasn't slaves and servants. Slaves and servants knew where their next meal was coming from. They had a steady position, a steady job. Day laborers every day were wondering, where is it going to come from? And you heard Jesus talk in a parable about day laborers. Remember the parable about some who started at the beginning of the day and others who came towards the end of the day and how the landowner paid them the same. And there was a big uproar about that. He talked about day laborers. That was the lowest class in society. They lived day to day on edge. What are we going to do? That was not the servant class, the slave class. Slaves could receive an education, and many of them did, and a good education. Slaves could attain financial success. As a slave, you could save and purchase your own business in which you might have slaves or servants. You had the opportunity to succeed at business. 
you as a slave owner, I found this really interesting. You as a slave, slave owner may live next to a slave family that has a nicer house than you. It was possible. And there was nothing about them that you would just look at them and automatically know they're slaves, they're servants. They didn't stand out like that. That's not what this was. They worked in slaves and servants worked in everything from menial tasks like mining, cleaning in a household job, all the way to teaching. They worked as teachers, um, some of them even as well-trained and highly qualified physicians from the slave or servant class. They could attain great wealth, power, status. Two slaves that you may know of in the Bible. Joseph, there's one. Remember Joseph? Sold into slavery. Became a slave in Potiphar's household. Where did he end up in Potiphar's household? Head over all of Potiphar's affairs. Not bad for a slave. Then he ended up in jail. What did he do after jail? Right back to the top in a place of power over Egypt. It was possible for slaves to advance that far back and into the first century. Another honorable mention goes to Daniel. Daniel, a slave who became second in in command to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Now, Israel, Israel had specific guidelines for how they treated slaves. And some of those guidelines were, were quite impressive. Um, now these weren't practiced by everybody at that time. Okay. You can have a terrible master or you can have a really good master. Israel had guidelines and some of them were quite cool. If somebody sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt, the owner of that slave was not permitted to charge any interest on that debt. If that's how the slave was paying it off, it became an interest free loan at that point. Holidays and festivals were extended to slaves just like all the Israelites. So was the Sabbath. The slaves also rested on the Sabbath day along with their masters. If a slave from another nation was to escape an unjust slavery and make it to Israel, once they got into Israel, they were welcomed in as free people. And they were given a chance to start over again with no obligation to remain in slavery. They were free. And the Israelites took care of them. Um, Then after a certain number of years on the year of Jubilee, Hebrew slaves were set free by their owners. That was part of the, uh, the Israelites and their system there. And when you released a slave, you as their master were responsible to give them enough financial or material assistance that they could go out and get established on their own and not immediately go back into the same kind of work that they had been doing. You had to take care of them. So this was a very different kind of environment. And in light of all this, God spoke to slaves and he spoke to slave owners throughout the Bible in many different ways of their responsibilities and their hearts and how this was to all play out. Okay, hopefully that's a little bit clearer picture of the culture into which Peter was writing when he wrote these things. But we need to consider our own culture for a minute because I do believe that God has something to say to us through the book of 1 Peter about our work, about our vacation, vocations, about our jobs. And this isn't just a, a complete total parallel. I understand that. It's very different between us and them. But there's so much in here that Peter writes, and I hope we get a lot out of this. Because if slaves worked in, in such a wide range as household help to skilled physicians and God's covering quite a scope 
an enormous scope when he writes to servants and to slaves. And I think we need to pay attention. I'll explain why as we go. Second thing that I wanted us to acknowledge this morning is our own perspective when it comes to work. When it comes to what we do, to our jobs. I believe that God's going to help us find some new perspective on our work as we go through the next few weeks. But that means that we're going to have to address our current perspective. Um, Some of it's good. Some of it not so good. Off a little bit. What is work to us today? What does it mean to us today? What's its significant? What is, what is the, the, the relevance, the significance, the value of our jobs today? Our work, what we go and do throughout the week? Well, several possibilities come to mind. The first and I think most common is this. Work is a necessary evil. It's something we have to do. Life costs money, so we need to work. So we'll get a job. We'll do what we can to make ends meet, to pay the bills. We put in our time because the rest of life needs cash. And so we show up and do the necessary evil and get the job done. Another way that we look at it often is a means to an end. There are things or there is a certain standard of living that we want for ourselves and our family, that we expect for ourselves and our family, that we sometimes think we're entitled to for ourselves and our family. And so we're going to pursue those things, that standard, that life. And we'll go work for that. We'll go achieve that standard. We'll go after the American dream because that's what you do here. We want what we see around us. We want the people around us to want what we have. And so we work. We work and we'll knock ourselves out to make sure that we have those things and that standard of living. Work may give us a sense of accomplishment. Climbing the corporate ladder, finishing the project, meeting the deadline, risking for gain, outdoing ourselves and others, and on and on and on it goes. We may get some sense of satisfaction by doing that in our jobs. So maybe that becomes the meaning of our work. Work may be a place where our need for significance is met, or at least sought. Recognition, identity, status. Too many people in our culture are defined by their jobs. Are you defined by your job? Are you defined by what you do? It's one of the first questions we ask each other. What do you do? Does that define us? And work may be a way for us to gain some sense of security. We don't worry as much if we're working. We sometimes get this false sense of security from holding down a job, from being with something for a long time, thinking that everything's good because I'm in. I've got seniority. I've got a a solid income. Nothing's going to touch that. This is where I get my security from. But what does God think about our work? What does he have to say about our work? What are his desires when it comes to work and his creation? And some of us are going to have to uh, look deep in the next few weeks. And what we find may surprise, it may challenge us. But I want you to go on that journey with me. I want us to take a deep, hard look at our work. Whether it's inside the home or outside the home, we need to look at this closely and see what God has to say to us about our work. Third thing I want us to consider briefly this morning is just one aspect of what God thinks about our work. 
Watch what he says way back in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And in verse 15 it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And let me just destroy this thought before we get any further. Work is not a result of the fall of mankind. We're not being punished by God by having to work. These verses come before the fall, before sin entered the world. And honestly, when Christ returns and this place is renewed and restored, I'm going to have work to do and so are you. Then we're going to love it. Because God created us to work. No amens? Come on! (laughs) Folks, we're not being punished by having to work. But if we're not looking at work from God's perspective, that's what it feels like. That because this world is so messed up, we have to work. We have to put in 50, 60 hours a week to get it done because of sin. It's never my fault. Listen, God is not the one instructing us to find our significance and our security in our work. That doesn't come from God. God does not view our work as a necessary evil. God is for work and he has a lot to say about work. I want to dig into that for the next few weeks. Work is not a self-centered pursuit that humans enter into for the sake of having and getting more and more and more. So maybe it's time for us to take a fresh look at work and see what God has to say about it. Maybe God's going to speak through the words of Peter and show us something new. Some new insight. Last thing that I want to briefly mention this morning is just something to get us thinking about all this. Um, And it's simply this. You and I share the same boss. We do. God created mankind to work and he gave Adam work in the garden right from the start. And he also gave us a lot of perspective regarding that work. And this is where I want us to begin in the transformation of our perspective, of our minds and our hearts We'll build on this quite a bit. Colossians 3.23, Paul says this. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Chapel Hill, just start there. And I know for some of you, you're already doing this. You are working as for the Lord. You are. But we're going to build on this. And you and I, no matter what we do or where we do it, we work for our Father in heaven. We work for God. And we were created by him to work. We're going to need at least two things for the weeks ahead. Number one, to answer this question, are you willing to surrender your work to God for his purposes? Are you willing to hand it off to him? And that surrender is going to be absolutely essential as we move forward. Secondly, do you believe that God cares enough and is capable of redeeming your work? Do you believe that God can do it? Do you believe that God cares about what you do, no matter what it is? Do you believe that God can take you where you're at right now and redeem what you're doing for his glory, for his purposes? 
That's the kind of faith that this is going to take. He does care. And he can redeem your work no matter what you do, no matter where you are. God can redeem it. And I look forward to what he's going to do. Invite God this week to do what he wants to do in you regarding your work, no matter what it is. Offer your job inside, outside the home, whatever it is that you do. Offer it to him every day this week. Start this series that way. Start by just saying every morning, God, my work is yours. What I do today is yours. You take it. You bring meaning to it. You redeem it for me. God, it's yours. I surrender to your plan for my work. Do that every day this week. And let's begin this journey together. I'm going to invite the ushers to come now as we close the service. Let's pray together as they do. Father, I thank you for work. And and you know I couldn't always say that. And you know which ones of us can't say that right now. Which ones of us struggle so much with work. So God, I do invite you to, to help us with this. Help us surrender our work to you. Help us to trust with deep faith that you can redeem what we do every day. That you can take it and shape it, that you can change it, that you can transform it, that you can take something that we, we simply may not look forward to at all every day, and you can turn it into something beautiful. And more than that, because we know you're not just concerned about our circumstances, more than that, Father, I ask that you would change our hearts and our minds when it comes to work. Make our hearts and our minds beautiful. Make our attitude towards work beautiful. Make our thoughts about work beautiful. Change us from the inside out so that we can be a light wherever we are, no matter what we're doing, even in our work. Thank you again, Lord, for your word, for all that you have to say to us, for all that you're going to teach us. We commit ourselves to you again in Jesus' name. Amen.